Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Nehemiah, the first chapter. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the twentieth year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, I was cupbearer to the king. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Susan. Good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. It's so good to see so many of you on this holiday weekend. We are, in fact, today going to be finishing a series that we've been doing for almost a year. Uh, So some of you will breathe a sigh of relief, I'm sure, at that. But we've been working our way through the Old Testament scriptures, looking at the story the Old Testament is telling through uh, the lens of the mission that God has in the world and the people that he has for that mission, the, the nation of Israel and how he has dealt with them. And as we come to this book in in Nehemiah, the people, as we've been saying for a number of weeks now, have been carted off into exile in Babylon, and then Babylon was conquered by Persia, and so Nehemiah is here in Susa. But after a generation or so, the Jews began to return to the land of Israel to rebuild the temple and to restart the nation. That's kind of what's happening. That's the backstory of this book. And, And we've said that the Bible calls us exiles in the world. And so just like these exiles of Israel who are returning to their homeland to rebuild, to restart, to restructure, to reestablish the nation, so we have been given a work, too, that God would point us toward our city with. And that's what we want to talk about this morning. Because this book, this story of Nehemiah, really is uh, wonderful. And I wish we had... Um, many, many weeks to look at all the details. In fact, we've done that before in the history of our church, and maybe we will one day again. But what I want you to see is just three things this morning. I want to get right into it. I want you to see how this story of Nehemiah, number one, aims us in our work toward the broken wall. Secondly, I want you to see how it postures us to go about our work with a broken heart. And then lastly, I'd like for you to see how it empowers us for our work 
by pointing us to the broken God. All three of those things, and they're just the three points in the outline that I gave you. The broken wall, the broken heart, and lastly, the broken God. Okay, so first, the story of Nehemiah aims us at the broken wall. He gets the report of Jerusalem and the broken wall. Now, I have a confession to make. I have a mild, and it's mild, but I have a mild obsession with post-apocalyptic stories. So, I know, it's stupid, but for example... Uh, 10 o'clock on Sunday nights, my son and I are, have been watching Falling Skies, which is a series on TNT about an alien invasion that has, you know, decimated human society, but there's a small human resistance that's fighting for their freedom, you know, and we, you know, watch it together and, and whatnot. But in all these stories uh, that, you might, that you might find in a lot of the series that are on TV these days, the scenery's basically the same. Everything's destroyed, right? The buildings have been reduced to a pile of rubble and ash, Roads are impassable, and every single person, it's fascinating, uh, every single person, no matter what's happening, is always walking around bruised and broken and bleeding. There are no reds or greens. Everything's gray or dark brown. You know, and so the reason these stories, I think, resonate so deeply with me is, well, I'm prone to melancholy by nature, but also uh, my work as a pastor doesn't help with my melancholy, because I really do get an inside look at what life is like for most of you, and it's like this. This report comes to Nehemiah about the city of Jerusalem, chapter 1, verse 1. The remnant is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, we're told, and its gates are destroyed. And so, the people, we're told, are full of fear, shame. There's real brokenness. And that's the problem. The problem Nehemiah is facing is a broken wall. It's a broken physical structure in the, in the city that he loves. But I'm using, and I'm going to use this morning, uh, the imagery or this, this picture of the broken wall to describe all of our brokenness and sin in all the different facets of our lives. Uh, the second law of thermodyna- thermodynamics. See, I can, be, I can be a brainiac too, right? Not just a silly guy who watches post-apocalyptic weird shows on television. Uh, But the second law of thermodynamics states that systems are always steadily and inevitably moving toward deterioration and chaos. You might have forgotten that from high school physics. The natural progression, in other words, is always from order to disorder, okay? But take physics out of it. Uh, Physics is primarily concerned with matter, and if you just take the issue of matter, take an object, you put it outside for long enough, and it will eventually rust away. It will crumble and fall apart. The one exception, I think, is a McDonald's cheeseburger because those things will last through, you know, nuclear war. But not just matter. It's true of my kids' rooms, right? Not mine, but my children's rooms. It takes three hours to clean them, and it takes about three minutes to mess them up again. Why? Why? Because naturally... What we learn from science is that things move from order to disorder and chaos. But not just, it's not just true of matter, it's true of relationships. You don't, anybody else experience, you don't have to work hard to experience conflict in relationships. You with me? Yeah, amen. Conflict's easy. Intimacy's hard. Systems are the same way. There's a lot of research being done about organizational entropy. And so there's a law at work. And you can see it in all different kinds of places. In the universe that, 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 that says that all forms of energy and systems 
will always be moving toward deterioration and chaos. And that's the natural and social sciences observing exactly what the Bible teaches about sin and its effects. Sin, according to the Bible, sin creates disintegration. It makes sense, doesn't it? God has woven into the fabric of the creation a certain design. And every act of sin is a violation of that design. And so if you, for example, have sex outside of marriage... The the sadness of that is not just that it's a rule and you broke the rule. The sadness of it is doing that is like trying to breathe underwater without gills. If you don't forgive people when they hurt you, it's like pouring water into the gas tank of your car and trying to drive around town. It doesn't work. It creates breakdown. And Nehemiah heard the report, trouble, shame, broken walls, and it's a picture of each and every one of our lives, not just the physical brokenness we have to deal with, not, not just failing health, not just bodies that are literally, I think they, at, at age 21, begin to literally fall apart, but emotional brokenness and disintegration. The remnants in great trouble, we're told, verse 2, and shame, right? So, so Hanani says, for some of us, the place where we feel this the most is in the emotional crumbling, emotional breakdown. That we all, no matter what, we, what strength we project, we all experience. Have you ever heard the phrase, be kind, because everybody you meet is fighting a hard battle. And it's true, isn't it? We're all cut up and bleeding and nursing deep wounds. Every single one of us, even pastors. Spiritual brokenness and disintegration. We're cut off from the voice that would call us sons, like we read in Galatians 4 this past week. And, and, in, and instead we live with a deep sense of condemnation, brokenness. There's relational brokenness and disintegration. So all of these things, it's very easy to see. Life really is like an episode of Folly's Guys. Kids, it is a lot more like The Hunger Games or Divergent or Cormac McCarthy's The Road. It's a lot more like that than it is Leave, to, Leave It to Beaver or the, or the Partridge Family. And I know I lost the kids with those, those two references because they're so dated, but we don't tell stories like that anymore. There's not sitcoms like that anymore. Because um, we don't believe that anymore. But when we do tell stories, when we do present something that looks a whole lot more like Leave it to Beaver, uh, the stories we tell are dark, excuse me, dark and sinister, like Lois Lowry's The Giver, for example, because postmodernism has done its work on us. And I don't think that's a bad thing, though. We're more awake. We're more awake. We're able to really embrace. It's, it's kind of our cultural consciousness coming out that life really is broken. And most of us walk around of feeling the effects of the fall. The broken walls of Jerusalem are a picture of the multifaceted brokenness in our lives. The broken walls ignite a mission in Nehemiah. And the rest of the book, we are only dealing with chapter 1 this morning really, but the rest of the book is the struggle, it's the story of the struggle to rebuild the walls and restore the people emotionally and spiritually. And that means that Nehemiah's story aims us in our work toward the very same thing as we find it in our city. You see, the promise of the gospel, from what we're told here and in other places in the Bible, is not just that God forgives our sins. And that's good news, isn't it? Amen? That God forgives our sins, that he accepts us as righteous and counts us in the beloved. But the promise of the gospel is even better than that. I mean, to have your sins forgiven, to have God look down at you and say, I've forgotten your sins, I've thrown them into the depths of the sea, that's almost better than we can ever possibly imagine. But there's more, because the promise of the gospel is not only that God promises to forgive us, it is also that he promises to heal us. 
Hosea 14.4, the prophet says, I will heal their waywardness and backsliding and love them. You see, God is intent not just to forgive us, but to also make us new, to heal our wounds, to put our lives, because they're broken due to the choices that we've made, to violate his design, that God would come to us to begin to put us back together again. And this is nowhere illustrated better than in that passage that Jeff read at the very beginning of our service from Isaiah chapter 61, which describes the work of the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you might want to to look at it. But he says there, the Lord has anointed me to bring good news. And that's that word gospel, to bring good news to the poor. And what's the good news? Listen to how Isaiah, the the prophet, in the mouth of the servant of the Lord, how he captures what the gospel is. It is to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to those in bondage, to set prisoners free, to comfort those who mourn, to replace ashes with beauty, to turn mourning into gladness, to take the ruined cities and to rebuild them. To set us free from our slavery to sin. To meet us in our shame, and love us so thoroughly. I mean, this, I, to love us so, because I, I, am like a, a, I am like a tree that is shaken every which way by the wind, but what Isaiah 61 says is that he can meet us in our shame and love us so thoroughly that we become oaks of righteousness. Isn't that great? Oaks. I mean, to take our faintness, and to replace it with strength and confidence to make our shattered lives whole again. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, that's the promise of the gospel. Come to Jesus, and he promises to get to work doing that in your life. And if you're here and you're one of the ones who Isaiah is speaking to, one of the ones who is a prisoner who needs to be set free or who is in great depths of mourning and needs to be comforted or who looks around and there's just ashes and need them to be replaced be replaced with beauty. That is the work the Lord promises to get to work doing in your life as well. But, but also, listen, it's also a call to mission too because look at the verbs in those verses, if you can, at the beginning of your worship folder, to proclaim, to set free, to open or to unlock, to comfort, to plant, to build, to raise up, to repair. And so the story of Nehemiah rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem and repairing the hearts of its people aims us It aims us at all the brokenness in our city, physical, spiritual, emotional, relational, to set people free, to rebuild, and to raise up, and to repair, and to restore. Now, that's a massive work. It's a massive work. And for Nehemiah, it required a life rearranging commitment. I've been using this phrase a lot uh, in the office, and even I've spoke to the church planning uh, group a couple, you know, last week. It's a life rearranging commitment. That's what it required of Nehemiah. Nehemiah heard about the broken walls in Jerusalem and his heart was so gripped that his life changed forever. And it's hinted at here in this first chapter in the very last sentence down in verse 11 where he says, um, now I was cupbearer to the king. And that's, a, that's foreshadowing. It's a literary device. It's a cliffhanger to get you to tune into the next episode. And it means that uh, Nehemiah, it means to point to what Nehemiah's role was. Nehemiah was 
uh, in the, the royal court of the Persian king. His office was the office of cupbearer. But we read that and we think, that doesn't sound very fun. I mean, you know, that, the kids, this doesn't mean when your sister turns to you and says, will you get me a drink and you have to go get them a drink, right, or your parents are going to yell at you. Something completely different. This is something like he's the prime minister. He's a high-ranking official. He's the second in command. He's entrusted with the king's life. And so he has a, a position of great power and influence and wealth. And so he has all, Nehemiah has all these things. He has influence. He has wealth. He's lived a life of comfort and ease in the royal court. But then the, the, the report of the broken wall comes. And everything changes. The rest of his life. From this moment on, he would have a different work. His whole life would be geared away from everything he had known toward this new thing that was now on his radar. And the same sense of call must come to us as well. The work God has aimed us at in our city requires of each one of us the same kind of life rearranging commitment. Jesus did say to all of his followers, you must lose your life in order to find it. And so there's a broken wall. And we're aimed in our work at the brokenness of our city, wherever we find it, spiritual, physical, uh, emotional, psychological, you know, all kinds of brokenness, poverty and homelessness, but also divorce and, and um, orphans. And just go down the list and you'll see. And that's really what we're aimed at, to be a people who minister the words of Isaiah 61 to their city. The second thing we see here is the Nehemiah, the story of Nehemiah also points us or postures us, excuse me, to go about our work with a broken heart. So there's the broken wall, and then there's the broken heart. Look at what happens to this man here in verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now, I'm just curious, and maybe we should take a poll. (laughs) We won't, don't worry. But when's the last time that's happened to you? When's the last time you came across a need or a problem and it just broke your heart to where your life shut down and all you could do is weep and mourn for days? Now before you claim I'm making too much of this from Nehemiah, consider Genesis 6-5 which says that when God saw the desperate wickedness of mankind and all the ways that it ruined his good creation, we're told it grieved him to his heart. So literally human sin and brokenness breaks the heart of God which means to see and to experience the ruin of sin in our city and not be sad as sin. Let me say that again. To experience and see the ruin of sin, the brokenness in our city, to see and experience its ruin and to not be sad is sin. So the question before us this morning as we read this book that we have to ponder, it might be worth meditating on later, is what do you cry over? There's a connection between sadness and love. If you want to know what you really love, if you want to know what grips your heart the most, if you want to know what things you're most apt to turn into idols, to use terminology we use around here a lot, ask the question, what do you get the most sad over? I mean, Nehemiah sees the broken walls and it breaks his heart. And C.S. Lewis warned about the connection between love and heartbreak. He said, uh, rather famously, he said, there's no such thing as a safe investment. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. But if you want to be sure of keeping it intact, you you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid any and all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your own selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. 
It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. And in the famous line, he says, The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. Lewis said, You have a choice. You can choose to be safe or you can choose to love. But if you choose to love, you're choosing to live with a broken heart. And the reason that's so hard is because we intuitively sense the danger, don't we? We know. We know that if we give our hearts away, instead of keeping them locked up tight, it will mean less time. It'll mean less money. It'll mean pain. It'll mean inconvenience. It will mean a loss of control or whatever it might be. And I experienced this this past week. I got overwhelmed in the middle of the week uh, by having to face some criticism from a number of different sources, and it seems the Lord is testing me because it seems to come all at the same time, which I'm not sure if it's better to come all at the same time or just a steady dose. Really, neither of them are preferable probably, but, um, but I had one of these days, and what happened was, what had happened was, is I just began, <laughs> I just began um, to complain and do what most of us do when we're criticized. I became a criticized, I, became, I began to criticize the criticizers. And so a really good friend caught me in the middle of uh, my self-pity and my complaining and was able to warn me. You know, they said, you know, be careful because I really think this is your selfishness. And then I was really upset with them, right, for being so insensitive. But this, this, this friend said, you know, I think the reason you're so upset is because this is inconvenient and it's hard and selfishly you don't want it to be hard. And it was such good advice. You see, my friend was saying, don't, don't choose selfishness over love. Live with a broken heart. Because, see, when we avoid living with a broken heart, that's what we're doing. We're choosing self-protection over investment. We're choosing the easy road over sleepless nights, which I had one this week, you know. We're choosing, we're choosing just the, the, to try to make things okay without having to do the hard work of really being in community with one another. And we're doing this because we imagine that a life of no interruption, no disturbances, no demands, we're imagining that kind of life is as close to heaven as we will ever manage on this earth, though in truth it is far closer to hell. That's what Lewis says. In the next chapter, when he is asking the king for permission to go to help Jerusalem to rebuild its walls, Nehemiah comes to the king and he asks, the king notices his sadness and he asks his friend Nehemiah, why is your face sad? And if you look ahead, if you have a Bible and you want to turn to chapter 2, his answer is telling, he says in verse 3 of chapter 2, Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins? Now, I love that. I I love that. Why is Nehemiah so sad? He's he's invested. He says, it's the city of my father's graves. That's my city, he says. I I have a history there. I have people there. My fathers are buried there. Do you see? Nehemiah's invested. That's my city. Those are my people, he says. And that's why his heart's breaking. Uh, Wendell Berry's novel, Jaber Crow, uh, is uh, titled after the lead character in the story, Jaber, who finally makes it back after a, a long venture out to the small town that he grew up in and becomes the town's barber, a position which he would occupy for over 35 years. In the first few of those 35 years, he was quite restless, always thinking about moving to the bigger city with better prospects, always thinking about doing something different than he was doing. But eventually something begins to change in his heart, and he decides that he's going to invest. And he makes a life-rearranging commitment to the little town. He says, these are his words, and they really gripped me. He says, what decided me, I think, was I could no longer imagine a life for myself beyond Port William. I thought, I will have to share the fate of this place. Whatever happens 
to Port William must happen to me. That really struck me because it's how I feel about this city. And it's how I feel about you. I can't imagine a life beyond this city, this church, this job. I mean, Winter Haven is the city of my father's graves and my mother's graves, literally. I have a history here. I've walked these streets my whole life. I'm invested, and I'm honestly a little scared because there are no safe investments. And if I was to be really honest or if you were to come over to my house and look me in the eye and ask me, I would have to tell you that I've experienced far more sadness and grief already in the last six years than I would have chosen for myself, and we're just beginning. But I'm here, and I'll be here. And I don't know if you remember, but this text, for some of you, you might remember this. This text was the text for the first sermon in our church on October 5th, 2008. And we chose it as our inaugural text because it sums up the kind of church that we want to be for the city of Winter Haven and all of Polk County. We want to invest. We want to own the problems of our city. We want to say we're here. We're not going anywhere. We share the fate of this place and this people because that's what it means to live with a mission. That's the life rearranging commitment the book of Nehemiah calls us to, to a specific place and a specific people and a willingness to bear with a broken heart. And if you invest like that, it's what you're saying yes to. You're saying yes to a broken heart. Now, let me, let me, let me just talk about this for just a minute. The, what you're, when saying yes to a broken heart means, on the one hand, you're saying no to fixing. I mean, when faced with brokenness, in, in the city or the, you know, the, the overwhelming need that we might come across, the temptation is to become a fixer, not a fellow weeper, to attack the problem from a place of strength, not a place of weakness. But how does Nehemiah respond? Do you see his plans to help fix the wall uh, don't come until later? But before he does any of that, he starts, he starts here, right here in chapter 1, not by fixing. He starts by first becoming a fellow weeper. His prayer is really remarkable. It's a prayer of confession, and, and that is maybe the most startling thing about it. He doesn't pray, God, you know, those, those people there in Jerusalem, they've sinned. Please forgive them. No, he prays, um, well, let's look at it again. He says, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which, and here's the surprising part, which we have sinned against you, even I and my father have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments and the statutes and the rules that you've commanded your servant Moses. That's amazing because what Nehemiah is doing is he's owning the problem. He doesn't say, God, I know it's their fault, but if you could, could you please show... No, he says, he hears the report about the broken wall in Jerusalem and he says, that's my fault. My sin's done that. So Nehemiah sees himself as a part of the problem, not as a part of the solution. Not at first. Not at first. His first instinct, his first instinct is to own the problem, to be a fellow weeper, not a fixer. Now I wonder, can we approach our relationships with one another like that? Can we drive through Inwood or Eloise and see the poverty? Can we volunteer at the pregnancy center and hear the stories of the women who come in and, or sit at lunch at Elbert Elementary and listen to kids talk about how they go home on Friday afternoon and they don't eat until they come back to school on Monday morning because there's no one there to take care of them. Can we have experiences like that and say, that's my fault? Can we own the brokenness of our city like that and be a people who address sin and brokenness wherever we find it while admitting that we ourselves are broken and in need of God to forgive and heal us too? Do you see what that would do? 
It would make us fellow weepers, not fixers. And the problem with fixers is they take themselves too seriously. They love to be the hero. They come off to everybody else as grandiose, but also self-righteous. And we resort to fixing because it helps us feel not so helpless, not so out of control. But no, 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 we are people who need to be redeemed too. We are just as messed up as all the other messed up people out there. I thought that might get an amen, but then again. So the right way to go about our work, the right way to posture ourselves is to meet with people as fellow weepers, not fixers. We're just servants, not superheroes. Servants, that's the word Nehemiah uses six times, in fact, in his prayer to describe himself or the people. I mean, Nehemiah has influence. He has the king's ear. He's going to be, as the story plays out, an incredibly gifted, talented politician and leader. But here, he's just a servant, and that's what we should strive to be too. Just be faithful. Can we breathe deep and just say, we don't have to change the world? Maybe we should just change one life. We don't have to solve the problem of homelessness in Winter Haven. Let's just get to know their names. But see, in saying no to fixing, what we're doing is, when you say no to fixing like that, you can begin to say yes to the real work. Nehemiah is a man of action. He really is. And you'll see it if we kept going in the book. But here, while the report from Jerusalem comes, it's fascinating. He doesn't call for a meeting. He doesn't create an Excel spreadsheet, which I'm very disappointed in. He doesn't form a project plan. What does he do? He prays. And one of the features of this book that is undeniable that every commentator mentions is that Nehemiah is a man of prayer. The story's interrupted by his prayers. He's constantly praying. And so when you say no to fixing, what you do is you say work to the real work, which is the work of prayer. Prayer is the work of a broken heart. It is the middle ground between the resignation that sours into cynicism and, on the other hand, will and anger that pushes, pushes, pushes. Prayer is work that has been drained of all will but hasn't lapsed into despair and resignation. It's working out your physical, emotional, relational brokenness vertically before you go to work on it horizontally. It's taking your brokenness to God because he's the only one strong enough to heal you. And so that's the last thing we see then. If this story aims us in our work at the broken wall, and if it postures us to go about our work with a broken heart, not as fixers, but fellow weepers and prayers... And lastly, the story of Nehemiah empowers us for our work by pointing us to the broken God. In Luke's gospel, in the account of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem in Luke chapter 19, the crowds are there to greet him as he comes over the hill riding on a donkey. They are hailing him as their king. And the scene is alive with such energy that when the Pharisees ask Jesus to keep the crowds quiet, his answer is, if they don't cry out, the rocks are going to. You see, Jesus is finally getting the kind of attention and worship he deserves. It is, as it is named in our Bibles, his moment of triumph. And I, at least the, the teachers that showed me these scenes on the little flannographs at VBS when I was a kid, I imagine him smiling, soaking it in, doing his best princess wave to the crowd because, of course... If it were me, that would be what I would have been doing. And that's the job of a grand marshal in the parade, isn't it? And that's what he was. But as Luke tells it, when the procession crested the hill in the city, his city, the city he loved, Jerusalem, when it came into sight, here's what Luke records. When he drew near, 
and he saw the city, he wept over it. Nehemiah heard the report of Jerusalem's broken wall, and he sat down and he wept. But the one greater than Nehemiah, when he saw the city, it wasn't broken walls that caused him to weep. It was broken lives, broken hearts, broken marriages and families, broken promises. Structurally, in Jesus' day, the city was sound, but when Jesus looked, he saw the people crumbling under the weight of their sins and the threat of death. And this picture of the Savior, brokenhearted, coming into Jerusalem to rescue his people, is actually an echo from something that happened and is even greater to imagine all the way back in eternity past. The historical creeds and catechisms of our church teach that God from all eternity had all life and glory and blessedness in and of himself. That means that he is eternally and perfectly happy and full. Now, I'll be honest with you, I'm happy. I really am. My wife would tell you that, I think, but a vacation would make me happier. <laughs> Anybody else, right? I mean, I'm full. My, my life is full. My life is full, but tickets to the Florida State game in Dallas yesterday could have made it even fuller. Okay, but here's the thing, not God. Not God. Within the person of the Godhead, within the persons of the Godhead, there was a perfect and eternal happiness and fullness that could not be improved upon. But then he looked down through the corridors of time and saw us in our sin and misery, and it broke his heart. And now he had a mission. And that mission was to rescue his people from sin and death and to rebuild the world that he had made once again into his paradise. His mission required A life-rearranging commitment of him too. And here's the thing. Have you ever thought about this? God's life changed because he undertook the work of salvation. B.B. Warfield, who's a Princeton theologian, said it this way. He said, into the immeasurable calm of the divine blessedness he permitted this thought to enter. I will die for men. And so mighty was his love. So colossal his divine purpose to save that he was led by his love for us into the world, to forget himself in the needs of others, to sacrifice self once and for all on the altar of sympathy. And here's what Warfield means. God had a choice. He had everything he needed. He was completely happy within the fellowship of the Trinity. He could have kept to himself. He had a good thing going. There there, There was nothing that could have made his life any more happier or more full than it was. But instead, as Warfield says, he chose to sacrifice self on the altar of sympathy. He chose love over selfishness, uh, suffering over comfort. He chose inconvenience. He chose interruption. He chose to live with a broken heart. And that's what makes Isaiah 52 and 53 so astounding. He was, we're told there, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, for he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He's pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds are we healed. How can we be healed? There's only one way. It was for him to be wounded. How can we be remade? He had to be destroyed. Jesus saw the brokenness our sin created, and he knew the only way to undo all the damage that we had done, the only way to rebuild the ruins, the only way was for him to be broken and ruined himself. And because he was broken in death and then raised from the dead, now he can take any kind of brokenness, any kind of brokenheartedness, any kind of pain, any kind of ruin. And when he puts his hands on it, he can make it new again. That is objective fact. But let me go one step further as I close. Because it's not enough 
to just say that's objective fact. Love is risky business, as C.S. Lewis said. And the power to aim your life at the broken walls around you with a broken heart comes from knowing that when everybody else fails you, there is a love that will never fail. There is a love that makes no demands on you, but delights in serving you and taking care of you. There is a love that doesn't even need you. And because he doesn't need you, that must mean that he wants you. Do you get that? There's a love that doesn't need you. And because he doesn't need you, it must mean that he just desires you. There is an inexhaustible source of grace and power from which you can draw. You have to know that. See, the power to love comes from knowing firsthand that there is a love that will take care of you before it takes care of itself. There is a Savior who chooses love and sacrifice ahead of selfishness every time. And it's not me, and it's not your husband, and it's not your children, and it's not your friend. There's only one Savior who chooses love and sacrifice ahead of selfishness every time. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ. But how can we know for sure that such a love exists? Francis Ridley Havergal wrote a hymn entitled, Behold Your King, and here are his words. Behold your King, though the moonlight steals through silvery sprays of the olive tree... No star-gemmed scepter or crown it reveals in the solemn shade of Gethsemane. Only a form prostrate in grief, fallen, crushed like a broken leaf. Oh, think of his sorrow that we may know the depth of his love and the depth of his woe. Jesus is deeply invested in you. He's traded happiness and became a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He's experienced a sadness incomparable to all other sorrows because his heart is filled with a love that is incomparable to all other loves. When all others fail you, he will not. He is a tender shepherd who carries his sheep close to his heart. Give your broken heart to him. Give your fears, give your anxieties, give your worries to him. He will take care of you. And then... Get busy in whatever the work is he's given you to do. Think of his sorrows that you may know the depth of his love and the depth of his woe. Let's pray together this morning, can we? Lord Jesus, thank you that in this man, Nehemiah, this great leader of your people, we get a glimpse of the one who is the true and greater Nehemiah, who when he saw the city, his heart broke too, but... The difference is, is though Nehemiah was a great leader who had at his disposal resources and wealth and wisdom by which he could do a work, the work that he accomplished in raising up the broken walls was a work that ultimately was, uh, was not lasting because 500 years later the walls were once again broken down and the temple destroyed. But Lord Jesus, in you we come into contact with the one that when you make promises to us and when we rest in your love, you are the one who has all power and authority in heaven and earth. And the work that you promise to do, no matter the depths of our sorrow and our pain this morning and what we may be facing in the next week, that you promise to come and that you are the one who can do a work of restoration and rebuilding on our lives that won't last for a few years and then crumble, but that you would take our faintness and our sorrow and our brokenness and you would make us oaks of righteousness, that you would take the, rebu- re- the ruined cities, the, the, the parts of our lives that lie in ruins and that you would rebuild them and that they would last for all eternity. We just pray that you would come to us and that you would begin even now that great work in our lives. Come and save us, rescue us from the effects of our sin. Come and forgive us and heal us that we might 
as you promise and offer, enter into eternal life, which is to know you and to build our lives upon you. That's our hope and prayer, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We believe that the gospel propels us in a life of mission. That is, that if in Jesus God's love is landed upon us, it is landed upon us in such a way, his steadfast love, which, which Nehemiah says, is never breaking, never stopping, always and forever love. When it lands upon us, what it does is it causes us to land in love upon a place, upon a people where we can invest, where we can pour out our life. Now, the song promises that's a hard way to live because it means living with a broken heart. It means taking up a cross, but it's a good way to live. It's the place where you find true life. And so the power that we need to go and to live that way in the city that God has called us to or wherever it is you've come from or from whom you've come from is to know that he goes with you and promises all of his riches, all of his resources to be at your disposal to help you. The reason you know that he'll do that is because the one who had all life and blessedness in himself became a man of sorrows so that I can now raise my hands over you and make this this assurance to you. So receive the benediction as God's pledge to you uh, to, to supply your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.